The gospel reading this morning is from the book of Matthew. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mountain of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And this is from Matthew 27. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And from Matthew 28. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. 
He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks Thanks be to God. Okay, is everyone still awake? Everyone still with us? That was a long, long passage. Uh, Thank you to Catherine and Megan for reading that. Um, It's Easter, and if you are uh, visiting with us, uh, we're so glad that you're here. And if you come back next week or if you come back next Easter, we are here for you, and there will always be a safe seat for you and your questions and your needs and a welcome place for you. Um, In Town is here for you and whatever your needs might be. I was working on my sermon this week and uh, had what I thought was a pretty good illustration, but then my brother uh, texted me uh, a Reddit board entitled, What's the Weirdest Rule You Had in Your House Growing Up? And it's about 22,000 comments. I didn't read all of them, uh, but I was cracking up laughing, and I thought, oh, here we go. So I you know, deleted my illustration that I thought was so good. There's plenty of what you might expect in this list There's the no dancing, the no violent videos, you know, people that came out of sort of fundamentalist households that had all sorts of rules. But then there were the absurdist ones where you know that the children had just gotten on the parents' nerves to where they just couldn't stand it anymore. And the rule came out of that moment where they said, okay, enough, I've had it. And then they codified something that would presumably prevent that from ever happening again. And one of these, I'll tell you a couple of them, uh, one of them was to stop their brother from asking for a dog every 10 seconds. And the dad uh, told him that, son, only every other house in the neighborhood can have a dog. And the other two on either side, they already have, so too bad. One parent came up with the very oddly titled the no pizza balling rule. Hold on, it'll make sense. They had three teenage boys who, no matter how much pizza they ordered, would always devour it, and so quickly that sometimes the parents or guests wouldn't get any pizza. And so they made this rule where you can only take one pizza piece of pizza at a time, and you can only get the second one once you put the last bite of that first piece in your mouth. And so what did the three teenage boys do, they balled up the first piece and put it in their mouth and then grabbed the second piece to take to the TV room. Uh, So the no pizza balling rule was enacted. Another parent forbade their kids from sitting on the toilet during a lightning storm because the lightning might travel up the pipes and electrocute you while you were doing your business. And then there was this truly, truly sad one where the kids in the house couldn't watch He-Man Masters of the Universe like all the other kids because the mom said that there's only one master of the universe, and that's Jesus. Now, that wasn't on the Reddit board because that was from my childhood. That was my weird rule. And I actually texted my mom yesterday and asked her if I could use this because she listens to my sermons online the only one. And she, uh, I was expecting to, she would, her to say, no way, you can't share that. But she was thrilled. I think she's proud of that rule to this day <laughs> and would do it again. 
Now, this Reddit board was live for one day, and it had 22,000 comments or 22,000 weird rules, which sounds kind of like an alternative title for Leviticus. (laughs) Or, depending on your perspective, an alternative title for the rest of the Bible, the entire Bible. Because this is how the Bible is understood, right? It is a handbook. It's a manual. It's a compliance rule book to participate in God's world. And then, therefore, the cross and the Easter gets narrated as this plan to rescue rule breakers. And the way it's often told, no one would blame any of us if we expected that even God himself is not all that crazy about the idea, that he kind of brings these rule breakers home, but sort of reluctantly. And he's looking down upon us with a bit of a frown like the far side God. And he's very disappointed at us and he wants us to know that. And when that's our understanding of the cross and Easter, how is it that we have such smiles on our faces this morning? Why are we here? Why is everyone apparently happy? Well, what if the Bible is not that kind of book, and what if God is not that kind of God? Well, we started reading Genesis, which seems a little bit odd for Easter, but the reason being is that Genesis, or Easter rather, provides the solution not merely for our individual personal sin, but Easter is a recapitulation of creation itself that began to be narrated in Genesis. And so the Easter story starts in Genesis. It starts in a garden, you see. And this story in Genesis, it doesn't spend a great deal of time answering the questions that you and I probably want to know. You know, when did this happen? Where was the garden? Were Adam and Eve real people? And how does evolution fit in. It doesn't spend a great deal of time addressing those. And it doesn't say, well, here's a rule for you to follow and you'll be fine with God. In fact, there's only one rule, which may be foreshadowing for Jesus, summarizing the law in his ministry. That the point is not trying to follow 22,000 rules somewhat badly, but to follow only one rule. So there's not a lot of answers to our questions that we might bring, but for the painter, for the poet, for the creative, for those with an imagination, and for the grieved, for the sad, for the disenchanted with the world. There's so much here. There's so much to contemplate, so much to think about. This is the setting of the stage for the Bible, for the story that the Bible wants to tell. And it begins not with a world that is not properly moraled and therefore needs rules, but it begins setting the stage for a drama of lost beauty that is reclaimed, that is, in fact, resurrected. This is the once-upon-a-time once moment for the Bible. This is our primeval history. And as the story goes, once upon a time, 
God gave humanity a garden to live in. It was the quintessence of beauty and peace and life. You can't imagine a more perfect place. And there was intimacy with God. And then a tragic choice was made. And that beauty, that goodness, that relationship was disrupted. It was despoiled. And these humans, the Bible calls Ish and Isha, not Adam and Eve. Adam is in there as well. And Adam is sort of the collective for all of humanity. And they then are the archetypes for us. They are human spiritual ancestors. And they make this tragic choice and then are pushed out of this Eden, this perfect existence, as much and more for their own good and their protection rather than punishment. You see, they had eaten from the what tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's two trees in the garden, actually. And they had eaten from this tree, coming to know the nature of evil, and at the same time being distorted by it. And as the story goes, if they then eat from the second tree, what happens? They will be distorted forever. They will be stuck in this world of death and of dying. And so what happens? God drives them east out of Eden. Remember the Steinbeck book, the James Dean film? And he puts cherubim, these powerful angelic beings, to guard the entrance, holding flaming swords. How intimidating is that? But then God does something that no one would have expected, not in our day and not in that day, because even then, gods were kind of like the far side God, holding lightning bolts, and they were about smoting and smiting and letting us know down here how disappointed he is in us. And in this context, the Bible's revolutionary idea happens. God does something no one would have expected. They betray him, that is, Ish, Isha. And while there are certainly consequences, the broken relationship, shame and nakedness, expulsion from paradise and the flaming swords, God does not reject them relationally. He goes to find them. He goes to gather them. He goes to cover them. He protects them. He doesn't shame them. He covers their nakedness, promising to one day restore all of the beauty that was lost. You see, in this opening scene, we see a flag of resurrection planted in a now-dying world. We see life beginning to stir again where there's deadness. And this territory this dying territory, this dying world, where is it? It's east of Eden. In the very next chapter, chapter 4, Cain kills Abel, and where is he expelled to? The land of Nod, which is in the east. Abraham and Lot have this moment of decision. They're going to move into the land, 
And he gives Lot the opportunity to choose which part of the land he wants. Well, Lot chooses the eastern side because it's green and it looks lush, but it's a mirage and it comes to be a curse. And the tabernacle, this mobile sanctuary that is set up, where is its entrance? Its entrance is in the east, which means to head east out of the sanctuary is to depart from God. It is to head into a dying world, a dead world. And cherubim guarded the entrance to the most holy place within the tabernacle, just as the garden. Do you see the narrator is recapitulating creation history, is recapitulating the story that began that we started reading in Genesis. And there was this veil that hung between the rest of the tabernacle and the most holy place, and woven into it were these cherubim and flaming swords. And what was inside? Well, metaphorically, God was inside. Because what was in there was the ark, the ark of the covenant that held the tablets of the law. And even if you don't know the story from the Bible, you've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. This was the thing that they were looking for, that Indiana Jones finds, and then the Nazis steal from him. And then, in one of the climactic final scenes, they open the ark, and what happens? Their faces melt off, of course. I mean, Spielberg is taking a little bit of artistic license here, but not a lot. Because in the Bible, the ark is the place where God resides and sort of a stand-in for the tree of life, which was in the garden. And to touch it was to presume to touch God himself. It was to improperly pursue leverage over God, to seek immortality under your own power, to take it rather than be given it. And that's the presumption that has haunted humanity from the very beginning. To seek to control God or to seek God-like control over our lives, just like those human archetypes, Adam and Eve, Ish and Ishah. To seek life that way is to find death. And which way has death always moved in the Bible? It's moved east. So which way does life go? I know it's hard, but what's the opposite of east? It's west. And we should know that, right, because we live in Oregon, and all good things move west. Jesus is walking the right way. It's the way that we have walked. This is all in the Oregonian Study Bible, if you want to pick one up. Well, I've probably got you worried because we're still in Genesis, right? And you know this is Easter, so we've got to get to the Gospels. We have a long way to go. But we're going to leapfrog some stuff here. About a thousand years, actually, because we want to get to Holy Week. Because what I told you is that story sets up this story. And this story begins again in, of course, what we celebrated last Sunday in Palm Sunday. And Jesus is doing what on Palm Sunday? He is coming into the city of Jerusalem. And guess which way he walks? 
into the city. He walks west. And then he retreats into a garden. Hello, call back to Genesis. And in that garden that is Gethsemane, he prays and then is betrayed by one of his disciples. Judas here is the one now listening to the serpent. And then from the garden, he walks west again into the city, through the city and to the cross. And remember the cherubim that were in the temple or in the tabernacle and then later the temple and that big veil stitched in there depicting the flaming swords that were guarding the garden and re-entrance from death to life? Well, Jesus dies and the gospel writers say that that veil is torn. It is ripped from top to bottom, opening up the pathway from death in the east to life in the west. And you see, Jesus in this way is sort of this reverse Adam, this second Adam, and he succeeds where our ancestor failed, our first ancestor. Or, using our imagination, if we imagine this in just a little bit different way, just as God at the very beginning goes to find Adam and Eve, stand-ins for all of humanity, us included. Now Jesus comes, and he takes, in a sense, the hand of Adam and Eve, and by virtue of that, takes our hand, and he leads us into the garden again. He leads us through the flaming swords that would have killed us He becomes, you see, that tree of life which we can touch and not die. He gives life instead of death. The result, friends, of immortality sought in our own way and by our own control, by our own ingenuity, is always death. Whether immediate or eventual, we all will face death and all of our achievements And all of our good works will die. Even if we are strong enough, important enough that we get our name on a wall or on a plaque or a Wikipedia page, all of that will one day pass. To seek immortality on our own is to find death. But in this story, there's a better way. Because you see, Jesus comes not demanding a sacrificial death, but he walks through the flaming swords, not because he has a bigger sword, but at the cost of his own life. He lets the flaming swords fall on him, as it were, to open up the way to life for you and I so that we don't have to pay that cost. He comes not demanding sacrificial death, but he comes giving it. He comes granting, you see, his own life. And he reverses the curse, all of it, by allowing the curse to do its worst on him. And he begins, and he provides the power, the foundation for beauty to re-enter the world and to actually mean something, to point to something, 
Beauty is no longer just ephemeral, meaning that you seek in your work and your daily life is actually now connected to something. It is connected to something beyond or can be. It is not just 80 years and you're gone. He reverses the curse and begins the restoration of all that is broken with a surprise beauty, you see. For what is more beautiful than a God who could hold that curse over us forever, instead choosing to come after us and guard us and protect us and cover us? You see, friends, the Bible, it is not a compliance handbook. It's not a set of rules by which you improve at, and over time you get better, and God gets less and less disappointed with you. It is not a vision of a world remoraled because that was not the problem to begin with. The Bible is the story of resurrection. It's the story of water running uphill. It's the story of the incursion of beauty where there is ugliness and life where there is death. In Genesis, in the creation, darkness hovered over the face of the earth, and God spoke and life happened. And in Luke, tells us that when Jesus died, that darkness hovered over the land. But then he rose again and spoke, and new creation happened. You know, we, we often stress the, the disorientation, the disturbing nature of Good Friday, and it is disturbing. And then we think about Easter as a time of, like, pastel bunnies and baskets full of candy and the day that the one day of the year that the pastor wears a tie pastel no less you see however what if we have that wrong what if easter is yes a time of joy and celebration but what if easter is the truly frightening part two of jesus female disciples they go to the tomb where Jesus were buried, and what were they expecting? Not this. They were expecting death to go on just as it had gone on from the very beginning. And so they were disturbed. They were frightened. They were in terror. We read of violent earthquakes, an angel of lightning, military guards so afraid that they're quaking in their boots, And Mark, though not Matthew, tells us that the women ran from the tomb in utter terror. Everything is thrown off. There is both an unraveling of life as they've known it for the last couple of days and life beginning to be rewoven again. Water running uphill. It's new creation, so of course they're terrified because it demands that their whole life changes. It demands that they don't see death as the end anymore. And if we can't trust death, if death isn't consistent, then everything must change. Everything you see sad and untrue about the world, everything that is broken begins to be unwound. And death, friends, begins to lose its grip over your lives forever. If we have to doubt 
even the consistency of death, then what else should we doubt? If life breaks in, if light breaks in, in the midst of terror and heartache and darkness, what else should we doubt? How should that maybe re-narrate the places of heartache and dying in our own life? We're all pushing so hard. And I know you, I hear your stories, and I know my own. We are all stressed out people. We are seeking, we are pursuing, we are achieving, we are chasing meaning to try and wring something out of this world that is lasting, or at least to avoid the shadows, knowing that what? Physical death will relativize all of our achievements and everything that we're working for. But if death isn't the end, if weird rule following isn't the way to God, then everything must change. Everything has changed, and change is always terrifying. But the one who faced down death for you because of love and all love in practice is a form of dying, if that one who says to those frightened women is now saying to you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't be stressed out this week pursuing something that you know won't last. Do a good job. Take care of your kids. (laughs) Take care of your yards and all those things that you find beautiful and good. But don't do it because you're trying to find a home. Don't do it to pursue a place to belong. This one that we say rose from the dead says, do not be afraid. And it's, in conclusion, a story that, frankly, is so utterly preposterous. It is so implausible. It is so poetic. It has so much art of subversive imagination that maybe maybe it's the one thing that can make sense of the mess that we find ourselves in. Maybe as, a, as implausible as it might be, that sometimes the most beautiful is the true thing. So maybe it's time to doubt our doubts. Maybe it's, maybe it's time to question the conventional wisdom that we all live by and all find lacking. Maybe it's time to choose to hope in something else, something beautiful. And that's why we're here. And I hope that you leave here this morning just with a grain, a little bit of hope that you didn't come in here with. And that's what we want to see happening each and every week. And we continue to pray in the face of the implausible, Lord Jesus, help us our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, just as you sent Jesus those many years ago, that you would continue to send him into our lives each and every day. Send him into this church. Send him into the city and let this church be an agent of that sending, be an agent of grace for the lives of many. Give us reason to hope, even when it feels implausible, 
even when it feels unlikely, help our unbelief. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.